My name's James Cameron. I run a service charity uh, that's called Mission Motorsport. And um, uh, what, what do I do? I uh, ultimately try and build armed forces communities in society. Well, I've clicked record now, so we might as well just carry on doing what we're doing. And anyone that's listened to these knows that that's about as much vibe as I give off. <laughs> um, the, only, the only question or any structure to this is, who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, the first one's an easy question. The second one's a little bit more tricky. So um, uh, my name's James Cameron. I run a service charity uh, that's called Mission Motorsport. And um, uh, what, what do I do? I... Uh, ultimately try and build armed forces communities in society. That's quite a nice way to put it. Yeah. It's a very good encapsulation of all the, the bits and bobs that you're it putting is. your many fingers into. The, there's, yeah, there's, another, the, there's a little bit of um, uh, yeah, there's sort of many fingers in pies, but fundamentally what does it really boil down to what I do? Since I left the army, um, I uh, really help uh, promote the armed forces community in its broadest sense really in society and some of that is through the work of the charity which has traditionally been rooted in in a recovery sport program for those who are leaving the armed forces whether they're sort of wounded injured or sick or particularly disadvantaged struggling with that transition in between the military world and the civil world um, through using sport yeah um, so uh, you know part of that is um, and I was sort of privileged to have been along that journey alongside things like the Invictus Games and stuff like that, you know, sort of the very obvious public, shiny sort of face of recovery sport, which people sort of recognise. And uh, at, the other end of this, at the other end of the scale, um, uh, actually the things that you're trying to do are much more about individual journeys and you're trying to uplift and empower individuals to... Uh, fulfill their potential yeah. really and and not to uh and 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 not to fall short of of kind of where they could be in in society and so uh that's how my sort of work started when i left the military um although i mean the charity was actually formed when i was serving and that, that's been something i've done for some time but it's kind of grown bigger quite quickly and part of it was because i think mission motorsport never got Overexcited about the sport yeah. bit of it. Um, uh, the sport's the tool; it's the thing that you use to engage people. Um, and uh, but it's kind of what you choose to use that for is the really important bit. And that tends to be a much wider recovery message that that for some translates all the way through into a mechanism to support their families for the rest of their working lives. Well, it's an interesting kind of world for anybody that hasn't been involved mm. in the military to learn more about because we don't have the same exposure to that difference in life no you kind of you see some of the videos and this that and the other and you don't really get much of an insight into what it's actually like to go from that's your day-to-day -day life yeah to i've now got to go to the shops yeah. i've got to walk around like nothing is happening and it's a really hard concept for people that haven't experienced anything like it to grasp. Like the closest I get is I worked in the high secure hospitals. Yeah. So when I left that environment and went back to like working a normal job with normal people again, 
Yes. It took a bit of time to get used to like not being on the lookout for danger, essentially. Yeah. Cause yeah. And you've got to turn off that hypervigilance and the way that you, yeah. Yeah. And that's only a very small amount of that kind of exposure. Like, yes. not, not to downplay how hard that job is and the environments no. that you work in, but it's but not you, quite the same as a war zone. No, because <laughs> you get to put it down and go home. And yeah. In, in a way, I think sometimes those things can be more difficult where you've got such a massive difference in between work environment and home environment. In, in a military sense, there's, a, there's an extraordinary modern example of it, which... Um, I actually, I, I did, I heard a really interesting sort of historical precedent for some of the radio operators who were talking to special operations executive types who were operating behind enemy lines in France, you know, in, in the Second World War, who were, you know, it wasn't particularly a low, a low, and Lieutenant Gruber, you know, didn't have a little tank, he had a fucking big one, and it was scary. Yeah. And the French resistance and the SOA who worked behind the lines were, uh, were being executed. You know, if they were caught, um, there were reprisal punishments, you know, so they would fulfill their mission and um, uh, and that could result, result in reprisals against the civilian population and things like that. And for the wireless operators who were listening to these messages, that emotion transferred and your working day where you're doing that and then you're you're, you know, you then go home at the end of the day and yeah, th yeah. there's this tension in between being on and off. And there was an interesting historical example. The thing now is drone operators. I was about to say, is it drone operators? Wow, that's an absolute, yeah. absolute brain melter to where they spend the day absolutely focused with increasing... Um, uh, absorption in where they are just because the technology is getting better you know you're not looking at a sort of black and white shaky image you're looking at a much larger image you've got the freedom perhaps to be able to look around you might be pulling together different threads of different things so it's not just um, vision you might be getting sound feed from somewhere else you might be looking from different camera angles and you're looking at people and effectively they're doing a you know, very traditional military job of putting Warheads on foreheads, to use a you know yeah. a lovely uh, a lovely American phrase, but then they're going and picking the kids up from school. It, it's insane to think how does your brain go between those two states. Yeah, you're nine to five in inverted commas. You're wow. sat in a bunker yeah. like down the street from where you live, yeah. essentially. Yeah, yeah, or U.S. Air Force Base yeah. somewhere in um, in in North America. Yeah, you know, so they're they're out there living a life. Time zones are different, so they're sort of working weird hours or not working weird hours. You know, they might be doing nighttime operations where yeah. they're going, but it's normal working hours for them. It's it's such a, a hard thing that our brains aren't really built to do. No, which is understandable why it's so hard for people that have been in that environment to then come out of. Oh, hundred hundred percent agree. And and that you know, so you go away for a whole chunk of time. It is incredibly immersive, but it also makes life incredibly simple. Yeah. There is just this wonderful purity and simplicity of purpose. But there's this weird thing that um, that people have tried to understand. Why do soldiers miss war? Because you tend to find that you know soldiers, sailors, airmen, those who've been involved in that, they aren't big fans of war, but they miss it. Yeah. when they're away from it. And that's really weird. And it's not the war piece that they're missing. The thing that they miss is that 
simplicity, clarity of purpose, that sense of being part of a team, of just being very straightforward, what your role, where you fit in with things, and you know that others have your back, your you're very much part of something that gives you, I mean, it might be, I mean, war is typically really boring with very short bits of horribly exciting horror interspersed with all of the other bits. Um, But you're very much part of something and you're part of a, you're part of a thing. And that esprit de corps and all of the rest of it, you know, beautifully typified. What was it? Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow's film talking about, you know, sort of EOD operations in, in Iraq. 85% 85% of which of that film is bollocks. But there, there, is, there is a scene that gets referred to a few times and it's quite impactful of the bloke where he's come back and it's just done by a, there'll be a cinematic phrase for it, it'll be a jump zoom or something like that. Right. But you know, one minute he's in Iraq and the next minute he's back and he's on R&R and he's standing in a Walmart um, cereal aisle just looking, you know, with a shopping list in his hand that his missus has given him, you know, go and get whatever, Cheerios. And he's just stood looking at this or line of cereal like in one direction and the other, and he just sort of looks down one way and then he looks down the other way and he looks at the list. And 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 it just really effectively conveys that. I'm like, what is the point of this? Yeah. When you just just suppose that with, with the stuff, the life and death stuff that he was doing that he would return to, and just how horribly out of place he feels, and which of the two places does he feel at the most home? And there is absolutely no doubt he was feeling very out of place Standing in the middle of a Walmart with all that free choice of with all pointlessness. Uh, the pointless bollocks. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It, it's interesting. It's a, a feeling that I've had mainly growing up as a like a teenager. Yeah. It was this looking at the world around you, going, "What is the point? What yeah. is the reason to exist? If all I'm supposed to do is go to work, to pay for a house, to grow old, and then like there's no reason behind any of it. it you're just then part of this." ever-moving cycle of what's the new shiny thing to buy this month to keep you distracted from how pointless all of this stuff is. Paying VAT before, yes, the sweet release of old age and death can come and take us away. Yeah, yes, absolutely. It's it's quite an existential crisis that happens. And it, it's one of those where it's resulted in what I do now, which is let's try and make a bit of a difference and have a bit of a purpose. Because otherwise, you just sit at home going... Well, this is all a bit much of a muchness for no real reason. Like, yes, I enjoy having friends and doing things, and totally. But on a grander scale, you kind of go, "I thought I'd, but, I'd be doing more than this." <laughs> and, and to make it, and to make it really clear, I mean, most service leaders leave the military and go and do amazing things. You know, need bugger all help at all. You know, they get out and they go and they have an absolutely amazing time. Um, uh, and a, you know, for some, you find this depending on where they've been in the military. The military can be amazing at enabling innovation, but it can be terrible at stifling it too. And it depends yeah. where you are at what level and what you're doing and, and individuals and personalities. I was incredibly fortunate because I am I am a natural innovator. I'm sort of more at my happiest where we're moving new boundaries rather than, yeah. rather than sort of just taking over and doing the same thing as that which has been done before. Um, so the military can be absolutely brilliant at it. And you see people come out and, and do incredible things. But for those who don't, that massive change in culture is a big thing. And um, and it might not happen exactly at the point where they leave service. You know, so they might step out and go straight into a job. But then there's this period of going, bloody hell, you know, I, 
and learning what civvies do for a living. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous. But, you know, what makes people tick? Because actually you land into a culture which is very different from the one that you were in before. And you're also, and you're trying to search and, and find out, well, okay, what, what am I? Yeah. Because in the military, it's really obvious. You know, what are you? Your, your rank, your status, you're the courses you've done, you're the um, specialisation that you've gone down. And it's really easy in the armed forces to sort of walk into a room and you can place everybody. Yeah. In terms of the hierarchy, it's really easy because they're all wearing it on their front, which is great. But then you can also have an idea because of the role and where they're doing, what their responsibilities are and their relative age. You've got an idea whether somebody's, you know, really sort of sharp, you know, young thruster or somebody who might have come up through the ranks and then gone into, into that role. Massive weight of experience, you know. Probably not to be messed about with. Probably somebody to be able to listen to. Somebody else who might be much more innovative and all of the rest of it. You can you can get a feel of that within moments without anybody speaking in yeah. the military. Really easy. You walk into a room in British industry, and everybody calls everybody else mate or Dave or stuff like. And you're like, oh, whatever. And and then, um, you know, you've got toothache. Uh, but you suddenly haven't got a dentist, and then you realise that, oh, Christ, hang on, all of this sort of stuff has got to happen. And your housing doesn't get sorted out for you, and a whole load of bits and pieces, and you start to realise that, actually, the military's got lots of support structures around its people, which you don't necessarily realise are there, and you don't necessarily realise you're depending on them until they're gone. And yeah. then at that point, if you're reaching out for a handrail or a bit of support that used to be there, and it isn't, and that's where you sort of see people stumble. Um, and one of the times when they stumble is when they have exactly that conversation with themselves and they have the existential, what's the meaning of all of this? Yeah. To find that they're working for somebody's bottom line and profit. That that's never been a feature of their lives before. There's always been something. We're not very American, you know, so we don't tend to salute the flag in the morning and do the big patriotic piece in, in the obvious way that the Americans tend to do. Um, which is lovely, it kind of suits them. And I, I think, you know, for a nation that is, uh, is still trying to define itself and what it is, those are the sorts of tools and yeah. things that you use in order to reinforce what it means to be an American. Um, I think the British thing is altogether more self-deprecating and nuanced than that. But that thing you were just talking about, you know, so um, um, what, what's your purpose? What's your raison d'etre? People whether they have articulated or not, but that lack is the thing that is one of the things that kind of makes them fall over. Um, well, it, it kind of it, there's a big void, isn't there? It's really hard to yeah. to get around because it's almost like this black hole that sucks you towards it at any moment. Well, yeah. What's the point of view? You know. Yeah. But that's the meaning of life, right? The meaning oh, of life yeah. is meaning. Yeah. And, it's 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 find meaning. You can find meaning, find purpose. You know what is, and that meaning is entirely personal. You know, it doesn't have to be anybody else's. We don't all have to have the same one. Your meaning can be, actually, I'm building a family and a future for my kids, and a retirement that I can look forward to and enjoy with my missus, and um, uh, and I'm going to have a positive impact on something. Those who have come from the military tend to, yeah, of course they have those sort of self, um, you know, self-perpetuating things. People mistake money for meaning yeah, because they shit themselves about, oh my God, I'm not going to get paid. 
uh, where is the next paycheck coming from? And so they chase money, whereas when they joined the military, you're like, hang on, you didn't join the military to become a millionaire. So money was not the biggest motivating factor, but all of a sudden it's being put above everything else. And that tends to skew people's decisions and they tend to make some, some dodgy ones. And you see people have a, a bit of a wobble down the line because they're like, well, what's, what's the purpose of this? And it's, okay, well, how do you go and find that meaning? And do you find it through your work? Or do you do your work in order to enable you to do the stuff that you really love, which could be, you know, your local model railway club or the thing that you, you know, you're building in your garden or anything else, or, or uh, it's individual to people, but yeah, they just yeah, need absolutely. to find that thing that they go, yeah, this is what I was put on the earth for and, you know, what I'm kind of contributing towards. Absolutely. I think that's a, a really great, insightful way to kind of explain that as well. I think it's it's not something that people often sit and think about in that kind of terms because as you said money becomes so influential on what decisions we make to pay for the houses that we live in and the food that we put like, it becomes a i need to have this thing to kind of start with everything else that we lose okay. sight of what we're actually chasing like i've gone through probably four different careers in the mm. 15 years or so that i've been in the workforce mm. And it's only within the last couple of years I've gone, why don't I try and follow the thing that I find yeah, fun or the thing that I am interested in? Or, And then I found myself a couple of weeks ago at hole 13 of a golf course, not because I play golf, but because I was doing some video content for yeah. them. And it's a, like a Tuesday afternoon in the sunshine and I'm filming an electric golf buggy just rolling past. Yep. And I was sat there going... I get paid to do this now because that's, I followed the thing that I enjoyed rather than yeah. where's the next paycheck coming from. Otherwise, I'd still be at the bloody hospitals feeling no, like, I mean, what's the, going on? And there's always a bit of, uh, there's always a bit of, well, there needs to be a bit of reality. Otherwise, we would all be, you know, Hawaiian Tropic um, yeah. uh, sun cream installers. Um, yeah. uh, you know, or, uh, or, or uh, you know, jet ski instructors in the Caribbean. You know, we, we all like doing things like that. So you've got to sort of pull it back a little bit from there and go, you know, lots of, I really love motorsport. Mm, yeah. Try working in it. Wow. <laughs> you know, and that, that's a wake-up call for people. And you go, well, actually, is it motorsport that you like? Or is it a bit of that, being outdoors, being associated, being around people you like yeah. rather than people that you don't like and your interactions in them being in a way being, you know, sort of really kind of positive. Well, you can do that and actually work for Greg's the Baker's. Yeah, or Tesco, or there's all sorts of things and people, service leavers in particular, because they've been insulated from society and some of those those things, um, tend to make some rather sort of clumsy generalisations about industry sectors and things like that. Whereas, of course, you can go and work for, you know, um, I, I mentioned Greg's. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of their work. Um, they follow me on Twitter. Do they? <laughs> yeah. And not Tacona, me. My hundred followers or whatever, one of them is Greg's. That's that's amazing. And I'm, I think I'm so jealous of that. It's, I think it's because when I, <laughs> I used to work in Nottingham City Centre and there was a Greg's outside the train station. You ate more Greg's. And I, every you. day I'd get a Greg's like sausage cob and a coffee tweet for it. a couple of quid. And if it was really good, I'd tweet saying this was really good. And if it was really crap, I'd tweet them saying this was really yeah. crap. And I'd just give them like quite a genuine impression <laughs> on how their customers react to their stuff. 
And eventually they followed me on Twitter. There you are, you're a Greg's influencer, yeah. mate. That's but brilliant. But this was bloody like eight years ago. And I think That's they've right. probably gone through enough social media managers that they're now at the point where they go, well, we follow these people for a reason. And I don't know what it is, but I can't Almost get rid so. of them now. Almost certainly. Um, but I've got a video on my phone um, from the other weekend. A friend of mine was in the passenger seat of another friend's car. Mm. And we'd just been to Greg's and got breakfast. Mm. So I've got this video of me driving along with a Greg's cup of coffee, like, mm. I've got a Greg's coffee. And I need to send it to them and be like, I've got a new thing for you to share. Mm. And it's just me pointing at a coffee cup because I've now got a reputation for being Greg's like biggest ambassador. No, I mean, it, it, totally. And, and you know, pe- people will have some preconceived ideas about what it means to be able to work for that. But, you know, you could go and work for Greg's in all sorts of exciting things because they're a big old company. So that as function-wise, they'll do all sorts of stuff. You know, yeah. they'll have a facilities manager who's looking after their big headquarters somewhere, all of the rest of it. But they'll also have lawyers, commercial people, you know, all of this sort of stuff, you know. And and that somebody out there has got the job of doing product development, you know, for Greg's who's, uh, <laughs> uh, who's, who's kind of doing that. And they also will be doing... How do we develop and motivate our staff? You know, what does our training things look like? How develop those new bits and pieces? And to do that, they need properly inspirational people who, who will, you know, go around and lead some of those programs. Those are very different from what you think about when you think about people who work for. Yeah. And it's it's to try and spring for us, you know, try and spring some of our service levers out of looking at things in massive sort of um, stovepipes and and actually thinking more about the soft skills the behaviors the things that they enjoy um uh and going well go and try and find things that scratch that itch we're not all going to be applying hawaiian tropic to supermodels yeah so we all kind of like that but but pick apart how do you like to spend your day how you know how much of your time do you want to spend on your commute and if you answer that question honestly with a are you prepared to move or are you going to live where you are, then if you're looking for a job, then all of a sudden you've just defined where you're not going to be. Yeah. And that's a good thing. It allows you to focus on, all right, well, this is where I focus. And then drawing a star-shaped thing on the map, working out commuting times yeah. from where you live, well, all of a sudden you've focused in, well, I'm going to be here. If I want to do that, and this is important to me, and I want to have time with my kids at the important times of the day, school drop-off, pick-up, where you actually get quality time with the kids before they've gone to bed, then that's got an implication on your commuting time on the end of your working day. So, right, well, there you go. If you know where you're going to be living, then that tells you where you're going to work. And focus your search on there rather than, I am going to work in IT. Everybody's got IT. You know, I want to work in cyber. Well, everybody's got cyber. You don't necessarily need to be looking into a certain industry in order to be able to do it. It may well be that you could do that sort of stuff anywhere and sort of. Yeah, and I think the point that you made about the generalizations that we all make on industries is really important. Like, mm. there are usually gaps for every person's kind of skill set mm. within most companies of a certain size. And I think people will be shocked to find that the thing they thought was a good job. Yeah. Let's take you're applying sun cream to a supermodel job. I imagine some oh. supermodels are an absolute pain in the arse and having to lather them up with sun cream is a real ball ache of a job. Yeah, no, totally. And there'll be someone that really hates that job. Yep. But they're well, in it because they were like, I followed that because I really wanted to do that job but, and but now it, I'm stuck it. It, it, is, um, it. it is the old truism and it works both for male and female as well. So, um, which, is, which is the guy sort of looking at the beautiful girl walking past, you know, just going, oh, look at her, isn't it? 
isn't she wonderful? And his mate next to him goes, yeah, mate, someone somewhere is sick of her shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone's glad not to be next to her. Oh, that. exactly. Just, <laughs> oh, God, what an absolute pain in the ass. And so it's very much about sort of perspective and how, how you kind of see yourself as much as anything else. And doing that, to be able to help people on that journey is brilliant. It's so rewarding. So for me, you know, what does my job actually consist of doing? Oh, I mean... And, I remember I got quite annoyed with somebody once. I think I'd had, I was having a particularly rough week. I wasn't getting an awful lot of sleep because there was an awful lot of work going on. I was up late typing various bits and pieces, you know. I was quite pressured. Um, and somebody, I got introduced to somebody and they went, oh God, yeah, ha, oh, man, I'd love to have your job. Your job's awesome. You know, it's absolutely brilliant. It was really gushing. And, uh, and I was, oh, you better. And then it dawned on me, I'm like, oh, right, that job, the job that it looks like I've got on social media. And I'm like, yeah, yeah no, totally, 100%. I wish I had that, that job yeah. as well. That job, <laughs> that job looks absolutely brilliant because it's, uh, you, you know, you don't post, you don't post the bits of, of gruelling stuff. I mean, I have built an organisation. So this is how wrong my job is in terms of, um, you know, well, I, hey, Jim, you've always loved motorsport. And you like the military stuff. So you've got the perfect job because you get to do motorsport and military stuff. So I used to um, I, I used to do quite a lot of racing. I just don't do, you know, I, I don't get the opportunity to race now. You know, I, or, or, or anything like, because it's absolutely focused. I've got instructors now. So I've made, you know, so I'm an ARDS A. I've now got other ARDS A's and B's and C's, race instructors. They're the ones who are now developing the next generation of people who are doing that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so I've, I've got all of that, you know, and often like the, because my birthday's um, next door to, to the, when we launch the charity. So when we do an anniversary event, you know, it might be, I've got Silverstone GP for the day <laughs> on my birthday. And I, how cool is that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't even take my helmet. I mean, I don't see the circuit. I don't go on it. That's other people are doing that, you know, that's all sort of quite cool. And I've also, you know, I catch myself going towards the end of the day, going, you know, only 25 minutes to go, and then track closed, and I go, <laughs> I'm like, how utterly apposite to that assumption of, you know, you love track days, you love racing, you love the cars, you know, you love doing all of those things, you, you know, I've did lots of driving and different things myself, all of the rest of it. Yeah, that that ain't my job. So I'm, this is I'm, the problem when you're the boss, though, because you then, as an organisation grows, you have to start delegating, and you get further and further removed from the original source. From the, the thing that you did. The the joy of my job is actually the important bit of my job, and and it was the same when I was in the military. So I think if you'd have talked to me when I was a second lieutenant, you know, I told you about oh, Challenger and what an exciting tank it was, and it fires depleted uranium things that are travelling at you know 1,800 metres per second, you know, and X, Y, and Z. And how cool that is. Or as a captain, I'd be talking about sort of running NATO exercises and sort of quite innovative stuff that I was getting to do. Or as a major, talking about breadth of responsibility and stuff. But you look back and you go, actually, the real privilege was commanding a Majesty's soldiers. Yeah. That was unbelievable. And the best thing about my job now remains, uh, you know, so I, I spent yesterday, I was in the Cabinet Office for a bit of yesterday, and I was a Confederation of Service Charities meeting, and then I was at another thing with a bunch of sort of luminaries at it which is really good but the highlight of my week by far was meeting the lad who's getting out in October 
lives in a certain part of the country who I was just able to spend a little bit of time with just unpicking what his plans for leaving were right. and planting some ideas and seeds going, why don't you try doing this? Why don't you try doing that? No, your missus has said, right, get her to come and help. What she's, And just making a difference to somebody's life. Yeah. And then two days later, I got a thing from him just going, that was genuinely transformational. It made me think about things which I've never done. That's made my week. Couldn't give a rat's ass or a monkey's about anything else. That's mega. And I still, in this job, still get those little bits of those interactions of where I get to see that. So actually, you know, yeah, a, a couple of weeks ago, we were at Goodwood running an amazing day there. That looked fantastic, by the way. Oh, Goodwood. oh man, our, our Goodwood amazing. days are, are, are just gorgeous. They really are. You know, and there's a McLaren P1 there and a Bentley blower and everything in between. And it was just fantastic. 120 beneficiaries went through. I think we had 55 cars there. We had a road group. We had people doing Spitfire tours of the Spitfire hangar and all of the rest of it. Their skid pan, they're getting behind the wheel, you know, doing skids, all run by beneficiaries. Staff were doing brilliantly. It was a really, really amazing day. Uh, I, I was still doing the, oh, thank God the track has closed. But I had an amazing day. And the reason why I had an amazing day was because I got to spend lots of time with people who I find personally inspirational. And joining some of that stuff up is incredibly rewarding. And if you're sort of driving home from work at the end of the day with just this warm glow and that warm feeling, you're like, yeah. Day, days like that make up for the ones where I curse people for saying, I really want your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those, a friend of mine yesterday, actually, he came around, the engine management light came on my car. He has an OBD reader. Yeah. So he popped around and it's either an O2 sensor or a cat is on its way out or whatever. Yeah. Something trivial, not life-threatening to the car. I took sure. a lot of stress out of it. But he went, we were Bista today. I'm like, no, why? We well, put on Instagram a photo of a lovely orange McLaren at Bista. I was like, yeah, that was like two weeks ago. He went, oh yeah, Instagram's not live, is it? It's not no. where you are at any given moment. I was like, yeah. no, I post the stuff that looks good that yeah, people yeah. might be interested in. That's yeah. the whole point of it. I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, I'm just eating some biscuits. Like, nobody gives a shit. Like, <laughs> yes. People like a bright orange McLaren parked outside the, the fire hut yeah, at Bista. Yeah. But it doesn't mean I have to do it while I'm there. I could do. You went, well, it, oh, I hadn't realised that. I thought you were just really enjoying your afternoon. Yeah, no, it's it, it, but it, it's fair enough. I'm, you know, it, it's it's absolutely a fair sort of criticism. You know, so does my and actually, I think I did modify some of my social media use. So, um, so perhaps it's less relentlessly positive now. Actually, I think it's now quite interspersed with pictures of horse shit. Yours, especially your Twitter feed, is very much uh, me and the boy are here and this is awful or this is great or yeah. we've overcome this challenge. And it's a lot more genuine. Yeah, I try, I try and be quite genuine. And I, I've done a similar kind of thing, not in the same way, A, because I haven't got a kid to go traipsing through fields yeah, and absolutely. climbing over stuff with, but B, to try and give a little bit more like insight and authenticity to what I'm doing. I've just started doing little like three-minute videos where I just stand and talk and go, this is yeah. what I'm up to, or this is where I am, or yeah, this that's is nice. what Coffees and Cars is, or blah, blah, blah. And it's been really nicely received, yeah. which, again, it was like, oh, I could have done this two years ago, and yeah. people would have treated me the same then. And I didn't realise that if I'd have just gone, oh, no, I can just be a person doing a thing rather than trying to make it all brandy and this, that, yeah, and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People actually, see through that. Oh, yeah. People see through that straight away. And it, it's it's quite reaffirming that you you kind of put a piece of yourself out there yeah. and you go, oh, I hope people don't just rip this to shreds. And then when people go, oh, I really enjoyed that. Can you do some more, please? You go, oh, lovely. People are nice. I'm not scared of the internet as much as I was five minutes ago. No. But it can go horribly the other way. 
well, I guess that is the the barometer of public opinion almost. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think social media can be an absolutely amazing tool. It can be absolutely phenomenal. Um, but but it can be absolutely toxic as well you oh, know, yeah. in the, at, the, uh, at the same time. And, and I have to... Um, it, and it can also turn quite quickly. You know, you can have quite a lovely bubble of engagement with the sort of people you like and the sort of things which you do. But it's amazing just how quickly the rest of the world can turn up and, uh, and make things really miserable. Or that, and I think some of the changes, particularly in Twitter at the moment, yeah. is quite a dark turn in that it's actually it's very easy to go spiralling off down an algorithm-driven negative piece yeah. of work. And I think if you click on one fight video, for example, you'll then be fighting off fighting videos which then turn into you know there's there's um you know police stuff and you're suddenly watching american things and people are screaming at each other and you, and it's compelling it's it's we're like wow you know and you're flicking your way through Isn't it the word awful what's next like bloody hell but you're just your barometer of your mood and your love of society generally is just getting yeah. eroded by the fact that you're scrolling through example after example of the worst of society but social media will really happily serve that up to you because you engage with it. Because you engage with it, and they're oh, we're going to feed you more of that because you like it. And you, you, it's so fast how it can happen. But it's so insidious. It's like, um, it, it's, it's like giving up smoking in terms of its horrible, insidious nature in that it sort of it detracts from you, and you feel like you need it just in order to get back to the point where everybody else is at, where you, where, which is normal. Yeah. And that's normal for everybody else. We all kind of feel okay. But it's this thing that makes you kind of want to feed the beast. Apparently that's how coffee addiction works. When you really? are tired and you have yeah, a coffee, it you makes you, it's, it's actually just bringing you back to baseline. Yeah. It's not actually well, making you peppier. It's the same for, you know, similar for nicotine as well and things like that as well. That Actually, it's a deleterious drug and it's mm. taking taking away from you. You need to take the drug to get back up. And you feel, I feel great. No, you don't. You just feel, you just feel normal. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's how. Well, the, the, I don't know where it was said or who said it or what. Someone compared social media withdrawal to like heroin withdrawals yeah. and how it makes your brain function and how it makes you feel if you go, right, I'm putting my phone down for an afternoon or for a week or for a month or whatever. It has the same kind of effects on your yeah. brain. Yeah, no, absolutely. easy to understand. And the, the effects of it from a kind of a societal point of view are pretty profound as well. Yeah. There's a can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it but it was a book called the coddling of the american mind okay and it was about kind of how american mm. culture is being yeah. manipulated and persuaded and this that and the other and one of the things they looked into was the rates of self-harm and suicide amongst teenagers yeah. and how that correlated to the rates of social media usage and it was like a perpendicular line as one goes oh. up the other one matches it Com- completely and i'm sort of getting a front row view of this because i've got a 16 year old and a 12 year old Right, yeah. And, you know, and I, um, my, my 16-year-old is not as big a bellend as I was, I think, <laughs> when I was at his age. But there's, there's enough of his dad in him that's not moderated by his mother to mean that there's a bit of bellendry in there because that's just, you know... You, there's a 16-year-old boy who's the son of a military man. So that's, it's that's, well, it's kind, kind of your, it's kind of your job, isn't it, as a 16-year-old boy? You, you know, all of the stuff that you have to go, you forget just how actually incredibly difficult it all is but but to do that whereas i did that you know so when was i 16 1989 
right, 89, 90. Um, it was a very different world to what my lad is doing it in. And, and social media scrutiny, stuff that follows you into your bedroom at night. Yeah. Um, is so much more pervasive. And Yeah, back and, in the day, you could be a bellend all day and then nobody would follow you home. Like, you go home and nobody knows that you've been a bellend all day. No. Whereas now, there's an Instagram video of you knocking around because someone that you were mates with thought and not only, record it. And not only the kids, yeah, the kids that you interacted with that day, your whole school year, most of the school, most of the surrounding schools around have all... You know, know about that, or you know, Carol Vorderman has retweeted it. You know, yeah. and all of a sudden you're, um, yeah, you're a you're a you're a, a bell end on a national stage. Which um, I'm not saying that Tom's done that. Well, well I don't know. I mean, the day's well, young. It's, the it's day's not, young. Yeah, he it's not could. Five o'clock. Yeah, he could well. Yeah, he could well be on there by now. Um, uh, and I, I, yeah, I, I feel for them. I mean, it's it's it. I think it's incredibly. I think it's incredibly difficult, and there is an awful lot of pressure that people. Kind of put themselves under to be able to be able to do that, and it's why um, a community is so incredibly important. Because um, uh, I, I think social media can be an absolutely glorious thing for bringing together community. And I, I, I was a, um, I've been going to the Nurburgring for for a long time, and I've got a lot of sort of uh, mates out there, and, and I'm done all sorts of different exciting bits and pieces out there from sort of doing press stuff and interest in new cars and sort of stuff with Manti and being out there um, uh, for car launches and race teams and bits and pieces and doing instruction out there through Ron Simons. Um, I've spent a lot of time kind of going around there and there are some people out there who I absolutely adore, you know, who are very much part of that community out there. And it was um, and it was a forum called North Loop that... Right actually helped feed an awful lot of that, but a wonderful way of bringing community together. Now, North Loop, the forum, doesn't really practically exist too much anymore, but actually North Loop people are the absolute backbone of the Mission Motorsport volunteer base. Right. Oh, to this day. That's fantastic. It really is. And it's everybody from like Cornish hoteliers to um, you know senior engineers, senior ride and handling people, you know, who, who were doing development driving and stuff like that out there, who, you know, we now tap into for, for you know, that's sort of part of my network, I guess, you know, when, yeah. when we go and do things. But because they know me and, you know, and frankly, they saw me um, make some decisions to go to war instead of, in, instead of you know, bailing out and being a civvy at a, um, at a much earlier point. And then they very much rallied around when I came back some of the things that I wanted to do to support the people that I'd sort of been away with, and they remain, yeah, absolutely, the and that sort of core of core of core of volunteers, and that's a community piece. Isn't it weird how it all came? These communities and that all come about for different ways. Yeah, like our forum is the yeah, basis yeah. of a, a huge network of people that do some amazing things. Yeah, it really. Like I have some of my closest friends from just happening to be at the same garage at the same time. Yeah. I it's the and some of the friends that I so the guys from the back roads, um, they do one of them's got an Eiffel four, one mm. of them's got a Mark Term or two, and they do like little project builds and yeah. videos on how cars drive and this, that and the other. We just happened to both be going to my friend's workshop at the same time and became like pals. Yeah. And now they effectively run one of my coffees and cars for me because I can't always be there. And the, this whole little community is built around this one cafe yep. that happened to be open 
when none of the other cafes were and doing a two pound coffee yeah. takeaway instead of yeah. the usual three pound coffee. Yeah. And I wandered in and I was like, oh, can I have a coffee please? And now it's one of my best mates and we yeah, built a whole community around his coffee shop yeah, with these guys that I met at a workshop from another friend who I met at a coffee morning. Like it's all but interconnected I'm, from the wildest little things. It is it, it, totally interconnected and it's also not an accident. Yeah. So, you know, how do these things happen that end up there and you sort of people, well, serendipity, you know, it's, uh, isn't it extraordinary how these things happen? But I, I, I don't believe in that. I believe in it to a very small degree. You make your own luck and um, these connections that you make are a direct function of the amount of times that you're putting out yourself out there in order that a connection could be made such that you would happen to bump into somebody yeah. in, order, in order to be able to do things. And the more that we can um, interact authentically without sort of putting a face on things, the more likely you are actually to bump into people who you go, you know, you and I, we're, you know, we just get on. Yeah. You know, we're mates. And there are things with which you resonate. But if you're not out there and talking to people about things, then you're quite unlikely to, to add to the number of people that you think actually I really share experiences and stuff with them. Yeah, exactly. But and you, you find that the people that are the most confident, the most outgoing, the most likely to get up in the morning and go places yeah. often have the biggest friendship groups and the biggest network of connections because they're more likely to bump into people. I don't think you have to... I can see you shaking your head. You have to connect that with being an all right person and not just a knobhead outside all the time. <laughs> That's true. Yes, if you're like, yeah, no, I don't know who the bellenders in our particular friend group. Yeah. You know, it's probably you. you. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, I don't know who this guy is. All right. Um, it, it's a it's a bit of both, and of course, pe- people are quite different as well in terms of you know how gregarious they are and all of those things. There, there are some massive differences in that. But if you you could be the most um, insular person in the world, and particularly, of course, you know, I mean, if if you're suffering as well in terms of confidence or things like that, or you're starting to struggle with depression and the, the edge of the sort of black dog bit, the easiest thing in the world is to stop doing those kind of activities. And it's the easiest thing in the world to kind of rail back. And it's, there's nothing more annoying than somebody going, hey, you've just got to get yourself out there and go and yeah. make friends. Oh, God. It's the last thing you want to do when you're in that position. But... Stuff that you do like doing, and getting out there, and you know, you you were at a garage because you're following a real interest of yours, and funnily enough, that's where you bumped into somebody else with whom you've resonated, and you know, and yeah. uh, and you go and make friends. But it's on that simple. Uh, it's not a deception because we're really obvious about it. That that Mission Motorsport is built because if you said to um, a bunch of broken folk who are disenfranchised, sat at home on a sofa that's becoming more of a tractor beam by the day, gradually turning nocturnal because alcohol and Xbox and, and failing to engage with society is much easier if you just shift your body clock back a few hours so that you're spending more time you know, quietly on your own doing whatever, Call of Duty or drinking or whatever else that's occupying your time. That it's more difficult then to go and engage with people, and you say, "Well, okay, we want you to spend your own money and drive across the country and come to an old Second World War airbase, where it's probably raining. We're going to introduce you to a bunch of people who you didn't serve with, and from all different um, 
uh, walks of life or bits of the military that you have nothing to do with and you might not like them. And then we're going to scare the living shit out of you. And then we'll perhaps do some basic mechanical tasks that will either be patronisingly easy or utterly irrelevant for you. And then we're going to ask you pressing questions about the state of relationship with your missus and your finances and your housing and how you're getting on with those things. We're all going to have a group hug and talk about PTSD. They wouldn't come near you with a barge pole. Yeah. But if you're saying, uh, who wants to come to Silverstone to learn to drift with Jensen Button? You're managing the queue. Yeah. And what are we actually doing with them? We're doing all of those things. And it, it's... You have to package it in a way that sounds inviting. Totally. Yeah. And that race, retrain, recover piece that sits underneath and has done since the beginning is because Mission Motorsport isn't actually about the sport. The sport's the tool. Yeah. What it's about is that recovery journey and how can we use that love of the machine in order to help people to start to tip opportunity in their favour by positive interactions, by great interactions with people, both their peers so they know they're not alone, but also to widen their horizons and to introduce them to people, things, ideas that they otherwise wouldn't have experienced and give them opportunities of threads that they can follow. Yeah. No, I want to do a bit more of that. Here you go. This is the way you go. And it's things like those Goodwood days. Yeah, I mean, they, they're so well. Roy Salvadori had, a, he had the right idea when he was talking about, you know, Goodwood on a summer's day. Yeah, it's, it's great. But if it ends there, we've underachieved. Yeah. What you want somebody to go home with is, yeah, they've had a great day and they've not thought about the gas bill and all of the rest of it and they're full of, gosh, what, what an exciting time they had. But you can do that at Alton Towers to a similar degree. You want them to go away with new people, new connections, new ideas, new things for them to follow, new interests, and something to look forward to where they are part of it, yep. where they're actually part of the delivery of it, or they're get, going to get to participate in it. And so today we've got go-karting, I think, at um, Coventry, um, which is part of a national karting championship which is 36 venues across the UK, you know, which is absolutely brilliant. And this is really lovely, low-level sort of stuff. Basically a bit of a karting package, but it's getting a bunch of veterans together around a narrative that's really quite positive, and it's about opportunity and how can you help each other out, and do you fancy coming and doing a bit of this afterwards? And you're using the go-karting as the, you know, who wouldn't want to... It's a door opener, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a similar idea behind the, the coffee mornings that I do, is let's mm. give people a reason to get out of the house. Totally. Yeah. Come and have a look at some interesting cars, have a chat to some people, have a nice breakfast and a cup of coffee. Because and... men are rubbish at it, generally. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I mean, women just do tend to be more emotionally um, uh, literate. There we go. There. <laughs> yeah. And that, was... that's it. It's not that we aren't emotional. It's just we don't understand a lot of our emotions most of the time. I mean, it, it's hard and we struggle to, translate... to express it the feeling into the what yeah. we're actually... And I have it a lot, even with all the things that I do, and my other half is an actual psychologist, and this and the other. Yeah. I can sit there and go, I feel something, and I don't know what it is, but it's making me feel negative, but I can't figure out whether I'm upset, yeah. or I'm angry, or I'm lost. And it takes me a good half an hour of going, what, what is going to make this feel better? And trying little bits and go, oh, that one's made me feel better. Now I can start to unpack totally. what was going wrong in the first place. And my wife is so much better at that than I am. Yeah. And she'll, you know, wear her emotions on her sleeve and all of the rest of it. And, 
you know, it's that thing, you know, where you're sort of lying in bed and she goes, I wonder what he's thinking about, you know, and I am... Just static. Yes, <laughs> just white noise. There's, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking through my line through Piff Path at Power No. You know, just be, what is the next word? Yeah, no, I'm, think of, yeah, exactly. I'm trying it to looks remember, like you're really trying to remember indeed. the name of the corner, and she's like, "Oh God, look, he's 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 deep in inner turmoil." And I'm like, "Yeah, grass is getting a bit too long. I wonder if I can get Tom to do that." You know, I, there's, you know, it's it's not at any sort of great deep level. Yeah, but um, I, I, I we're all on a bit of a learning journey, um, and for me, you know, I sort of I did school and sort of chunk of um, short piece of military time, university, and then and then 17 years gallivanting around in uniform. And then so a sort a of- bit of military, then university, and then back to military? Yeah, on, only I, I did a sort of pre-degree piece and was sponsored then through university. Right. Um, but yeah, that's sort of 17 years. And then, um, uh, and then my wife found me one morning, I just sort of stood at the end of the bed looking a bit lost in my pants and she's, and she's like, are you all right? And I was stood there and I'm like, what do civvies wear? And she's like, you absolute retard. <laughs> I just stood there a bit lost. Yeah. But it's been very easy for 17 years. I know what I wear. I, I'm, I wear uniform. And if you go out hours cleaning my as an army stuff. officer, you've got a very limited wardrobe. You've all got to wear the same thing. Yeah. Actually, when you're in uniform, you've got to try and wear as different things as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, and then you're just in this weird sort of piece. And I'm, I'm 10 years on past that now. So it was, it was 2013 when I left the army. So that's sort of 10 years now of, of being out of the other side of it. And um, in, in military terminology, they talk about transition, which has largely been taken. I'm not going through one of those transitions. A different kind of transition. Different kind of transition. But as you, as you, leave, as you leave the armed forces and sort of you assimilate into being a civilian, and that's what you know, my job is around helping people with so they can make that as successful as possible. But, you know, my own one has kind of been stretched a bit because I, I spend lots of time still getting to, and that's an enormous privilege. Oh, it's great to, you know, go to beating the retreat or something like that, you know, sort of being invited along. So, you know, a bit of the pomp and ceremony stuff. I miss tanks. There are never enough tanks because they're just cool. They're cool. Um, but the absolute joy of my job is that I still get that sort of contact with, with the blokes, and that that's that's the enormous sort of privilege. It must have been a huge challenge for you, because 17 years after you, you were like 20, 21 when you leave university. Yeah. So you've only really been a fully fledged person for like three, four years by that yeah, point. Yeah. And even then, you're not no. really an adult. No, no. And then you've I, gone I on, absolutely wasn't. No, <laughs> like physiologically, um, I don't know if it's men and women, but men in particular your brain isn't fully formed until you're like 25 anyway. Yeah, no, correct. So you yeah. get to that 25-year point and you're around about the person that you're going to be and then you get to 30 and it's pretty much like, mm. right, this is who this person is now. Mm. Unless you have a huge brain trauma or something horrible mm. happens. So you've you've gone from being a child in school in quite mm. rigid kind of, your day starts to here and you do these little chunks and then you go home and you've got yeah. a bit of freedom. And then you, you've almost stayed in a structure for your whole life mm. coming out of that must have been incredibly like difficult I mean like well what now yeah I mean I, I do and, and it's sort of like I was saying most service leavers you know they come out and off they go and they're away and they're absolutely brilliant and 
Um, it, there, there are lots of things that kind of stack up around that. I mean, part of that could be your job. So there are bits of the military that look much more like the civilian world than, than others. Um, I'd, it would, I'd, you know, this is normally the point where I'd be rude about the Royal Air Force, but the, um, uh, but I think that the, but, but equally you see, you know, some folk who are leaving there who are absolutely tied to it. It's very much part of the fabric of their personal identity yeah. and is incredibly important to them. Um, but, and I, I think because I had always sort of pursued other interests and stuff outside, outside the military. So when I, when I joined, I was doing an awful lot of kayaking, um, uh, at quite a high level and doing a lot of stuff, which saw me doing things outside the bubble of the bit of the military I was in right. and doing it with the gladiators from across the military, but also with Team GB and a bunch of other folk as well. So, you know, and sponsors and all of the sort of stuff that that been, which just kind of helps, I guess, make you a bit more worldly. And then, um, and then latterly, I mean, you know, particularly the motorsport stuff that I've been doing for some time and links into um, uh, the media, um, doing development driving for people and things like that, you know, was was quite cool. I managed to sort of shoehorn in. Despite, How do you manage to end up doing that sort of stuff? Like, I, I'm going to go to the Nürburgring and do a track day, and now I'm doing development driving and press releases. Like, how does that come about? Is this another forum that we don't know about? And it's like, yeah, there were, there's. Um, I didn't see that bit on the Piston Heads threads. The like, how to become a press car driver or anything like that. No, well, I mean, it was. Uh, well, weirdly, I mean, that sort of stuff came about because um, I, had a, I had a race car that I was, that I was running, um, bike-engined, seven-type thing, called a Stuart Taylor Loka blade. had a fire blade engine in it, yeah. sequential gear shift. Great thing um, that I was racing with and, and being quite successful with it. Um, was, was doing some, spent a, a chunk of time doing things with that. And... Um, uh, some of my mates who ran a local garage where we were based in Suffolk. Um, and they had this old Ford Beta parts place and they decided that they were going to take on this project, which originally I think had been a University of Huddersfield project right. called the Tonic R, T-O-N-I-Q-R, which was basically a seven type that they designed some more whizzy styling around, which... Um, uh, Weirdly, actually, Angus Fitton, who was head of PR for Porsche in, in the UK, is now head of PR for Porsche in, in the States. He was part of that student team, weirdly, but it was one of the other guys who had just kept this thing as a project and was driving it forward. And it had attracted a certain amount of attention from, inevitably, the kit car magazines and stuff like that. But Dave Edmonton at Pistonheads um, had been really interested in it when it first kind of appeared. Anyway, so this thing sort of turned up, and they had one of them, and it was a car in there. It consisted of all of the bits of a car, but I mean, you couldn't you couldn't drive it. it you know, it was it was undrivable. It had all of the bits bolted together, and they sort of went, uh, "Look, can you help us develop this in order to you know make it go properly?" And at the time, helpfully, I was based on a large airfield in East Anglia, right, um, with a certain well, a a gentleman's agreement that I managed to come to with the RAF police. Um, uh, used to spend quite a bit of time sort of herring around in order to like tweak the handling of the thing. So they, you know, made this thing handle and it was cool. You know, it was quite a cool thing. And then they said, well, uh, we now need to launch it to the press. Do you know how we do that? And I had no idea. So, but I inhaled 
all of the motoring press. So you open the front cover and there is, you know, here's the how to get in touch with, there's the editorial email. And I'm like, well, I could, I'm sure people email them lots all the time. So we just made a little video of uh, a nuclear bunker. So it's like Teletubby World, <laughs> series of nuclear bunkers. And then these doors opening and out of the blackness behind these two headlights come on and this thing goes screaming out, lays 11s and disappears out. Eight second piece of film, that's all it took. And uh, and I think we'd, we'd, you know, so when was this, 2004, five, something like that. So, you know, sort of pretty early days of... That's pre-YouTube. It is, yeah, absolutely. So we, we'd got it hosted online somewhere. It was only, yeah, I think 10 second piece of film tops, but that's, you know, that's all you needed. It was kind of cool enough. And, um, and then sent the link and an invitation going, you're invited to come and review this car. It's at RF Huntington, which is a operational station. So you'll, you know, you'll need to be signed in and go through security and all of the rest of it. Um, the base was previously used for things like, you know, Lotus F1 used to do lots of testing there back in the day. Triumph actually run the Bonneville, the bike that became called the Bonneville when it broke the speed records out at Bonneville. They'd done all of the testing at Huntington. Oh, right. So this place had a bit of, you know, motorsport history to it too. It's pretty cool. It's, you know, an operational base, no aeroplanes. It's kind of helpful. Um, but all of the operating surfaces. So, um, yeah, no, and it was a bit of a summer project. So, you know, I sort of asked nicely of of the station commander, and they went, "Yeah, no, that's all right. You can do you can do a bit of that." <laughs> and um, as long as it doesn't get in people's way, and sort of what I could, you know. So, spent a bit of time over summer leave doing that, and lo and behold, the motoring press turned up to be able to do it. And for me, that was the first time I'd met quite a few of them. I'd met some of them before at the ring and things like that. But it was, um, yeah, it was really good, and that was fantastic. And it was really brilliant meeting some of these people, for who for me were absolute heroes. And I learnt a huge amount from, you know, Mark Hales turned up in his aeroplane, which he had at the time. Obviously, it's like let's go to an, an RAF base. I'll yeah, take the plane. Well, he did. Yeah, no. So he asked, you know, is there any chance I can fly in? And I'm like, I don't know, but I'll find out. I'm like, yeah. So we made that happen, and it was very cool. You know, sort of. Um, that I do remember sort of. As he flew in, I chased him down the runway in the tonic, which was kind of quite cool, That's you know, cool. The, to the end. So it was great. Um, learned an enormous amount. People like him gave some time and actually went, hang on, um, do you mind if I put some overalls on? So he took his race suit off, put then like mechanics overalls on and went, if you change this, then it'll just have a bit more elbow room and it'll make you feel more confident when you're turning into left-handers. Like, I would have never have thought of that, but just the whole erg getting the ergonomics of driving yeah, yeah, yeah. position right unlocked vehicle potential. When you can hold, you know, you can be more consistent if you, wow. So you're just hoovering this stuff up going, this is amazing. Um, and then some other people whose stuff I read, who you then sort of meet in person and you think, wow, I used to, I used to read all of your stuff and I now know that I wouldn't trust you to sit the right way on the toilet. So that was kind of interesting too, to see. eye-opening. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, some of the people who work at the other end of the scale. And that, that was kind of interesting. But then, you know, some of the good ones, which is, is interesting, you, you, then, you then end up doing some stuff with down the line. And some of it is because people were interested in using the place. So they asked if they could come back and do stuff. And I've facilitated a bit of that. And, uh, and they said, sort of, well, you know, you know what you're doing, you, you know, you race and stuff. So could you, could you help us out? And I think I then provided some comments, which just got published I think it was Phil Royal in Performance Tuner and I'd just given him a load of bullet points and he just put that in a butt lazy bastard he just put it in the box and went Jim says you know with a picture of me and Jim says and and it was in and then got asked to do a few a few odds and sods and so 
I did a bunch of that in between sort of 9-11 and Porsche World and little bits and pieces sort of into, into Evo. And, and that Evo has always been an extraordinary catalyst for community and taking forward that real love, that, that joy of motoring and all of the rest of it. I, they've very much been synonymous with that. And it's through people like sort of Nick Trot, Dickie Mead and, um, yeah, you know, Chris Harris as well, sort of, you know, that, that time when he was at Autocar and Adam Towler when he was across there. Um, a lot of these, yeah, those, those were sort of first made some of those connections. And then through, the, through that as well also into manufacturers. And, for, and actually for me personally, Mazda um, have, have been incredible. I've done all sorts of stuff with Mazda and for Mazda. Yeah. And I think we're about to celebrate this year 10 years of support of Mazda UK. Oh, to Mission Motorsport, which is just absolutely Fair extraordinary. Well, there's two MX-5s outside. There's one right behind you totally. in the workshop. Yeah. There's there's a lot of Mazdas knocking around. That, and that's that's not a coincidence. Yeah. You know, that, that has genuinely been... Mazda UK have, have been phenomenal with with helping us on, on a lot of that journey. Um, and so when I came back from Afghanistan in 2011, you know, these were the people who I sort of reached out to and said, you know, I really want to do something, but I want to do it around, you know, to be able to help support people. That was where my sort of, you know, black book of networking kind of came from. And it, it sort of gets a bit bigger from there. That's incredible. And it's, it's one of those, again, that reaffirms this, like it's not what you know, it's who you know and how well you Completely. are making connections and connecting people to each other and things like that. It's, it's what really makes most things happen is, yeah. Oh, I know a guy, or I know who can help with this, or I know, and it's finding your position to be able to do that the most that probably yeah. makes the most of these things happen. Yeah, and I and I dev- and I haven't got it right all of the time, you know. I mean, there there are times when I, you know, would have got it wrong by being a bit, you know, just by being presumptive or a bit too pushy somewhere. But you just sort of try and recognise that when you've overstepped and. And just be genuine and honest with people, and um, uh, and that's been lovely. And it and it's it, it's been it's actually it's been it was incredibly cathartic because you have this sort of black book of connections which allows you to be able to do stuff. But if that's allowing you as an individual to be able to do stuff, that's great. But it's all a bit self-absorbed. I suddenly had this wonderful ability to use these connections which I had to benefit a community of people who I care deeply about and that's absolutely brilliant and the connections loved it yeah and that's why that North Loop forum you know those forum members are still some of our most committed capable trustworthy volunteers who give of themselves because They've come on the journey and they love it too, and that's wonderful. You know, so that, that's that's the human piece. That's amazing. Uh, it's really quite heartwarming to hear that that's the driver uh, behind it all as well. Not just the it's a charity. This is what we want to do. It's about the actual human connection that makes all the gears turn and makes this move forward. Like, what's some of the things that are either currently happening or happening in the near future for you guys? Other than the go-karting thing we've already talked about. Uh, well, other than the go-karting thing. So, I mean, we're, we're sort of bouncing into a busy summer season of events and stuff. So, you know, next door ops team, we will put 150-odd service folk through Festival of Speed on um, uh, during the course of the Festival of Speed, which is 
um, fantastic. And we don't use Festival of Speed as a fundraiser. It's about opening up the Festival of Speed, which is so amazing, to a community of people who wouldn't necessarily have got to go there and yeah. to do it in a way which is great just to be able to get them there. I mean, oh, Saturday tickets are £100, I think they start at, you know, and upwards. So a great thing for somebody to be able to get that. But if you can do a bit more than that and you can make people feel welcome and you can get the basics of the um, husbandry of them right so that they're looked after and there's somewhere to plug their phone in and they can get a cup of tea for free rather than an eight pounds one, you know, from somewhere else and uh, uh, and do that bit of community around it as well. But you, if you can also go, who really likes Formula One and lift the rope and introduce them to the Mercedes Formula One team, Yeah, you know, or Red Bull or, or McLaren or they're on the rally stage, you know, where, you know, bloke turns up, goes, yeah, I've always really loved rallying. And then in the afternoon, he's being strapped into the navigator's seat of a 6R4 that's about to go around the rally stage. That's over-delivering against expectation. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody expects to go to Goodwood with that happening to them. And, and you blow their socks off. you know. And, and Ferrari as well, um, every year for the last nine years, um, with the exception, obviously, 2020 when it, when it didn't happen, we put people up the hill in the supercar runs in, in Ferraris. Oh, amazing. I'd jaw-dropping you know and they go away with a video and all, all of the rest of it but they've met their professional drivers who are driving them up there and, and it's just wonderful you know it's really cool if you can kind of do that and so yeah festival of speed is always the shiniest point but that's a bit of over delivery lovely bit of operation side but we're sat here in the training wing we're actually in the training manager's office yeah so what's being delivered there's actually just outside here they're doing um assessments for guys who are doing uh, level four diploma as part of their um, light vehicle maintenance and repair institute of uh, IMA Institute of the Motor Industry qualifications, which are helping them into roles afterwards. And that race, here we go, we're sat in the middle of an example of retrain. A lot of it happens off site as well, where we're teeing up training and industry for people to go through. And the recover piece is that, you know, sort of bit beyond into, into jobs and stuff. And really, the next piece for me is. Um, you know, we've run Jaguar Land Rover's Armed Forces Engagement Programme. We've helped them to deliver that since 2014, first Invictus Games. That's put well over 1,300 veterans directly into work with Jaguar Land Rover. It was the blueprint then that we rolled out across the automotive industry with Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders in 2019 through an initiative called Mission Automotive. Um, not really a sort of public-facing initiative. This is a industry body, business to business, best practice. This is how you do armed forces engagement. Yeah. This is how you can benefit. For individual companies, there are individual things they're interested in. They might be targeting wider employee satisfaction. You know, that might be one of their, their motivations for doing it. We can kind of sit down with them and a bit like an independent financial advisor. It's not about us going in there and going, you really need to sponsor Mission Motorsport, the charity in your CSR <laughs> program. Um, we have never featured in Jaguar Land Rover's CSR programme, for example, but we've given plenty of advice to JLR on service causes yeah. in order to help them get the best from the stuff that they do do with CSR and that it aligns with what the company wants to achieve and the impact that that wants to have. Um, uh, so that mission automotive, I mean, we launched it in March 2019 
got a year's running in clear air and then you go into COVID and you think, oh God, this is all going to go horribly wrong. And actually, it just got bigger. Right. Just got bigger. So Stellantis coming on board and then a whole bunch of other companies too. Lotus as they're growing, going, actually the, the, the foundations of this company are from the RAF guys at the end of the Second World War who were all of our engineers when Colin Chapman was really sort of, you know, first throwing spanners at things. They're based on what was formerly RAF Hethel. Yeah. Um, uh, they employ a lot of veterans, but they don't know how many or they don't know who they are. It's not something they've done. So um, talk to us about going, well, how can we step this up? How could we start to do proper engagement? And weirdly, you know, how these things happen, uh, there's some wonderful people in that organisation. But actually, funnily enough, Carl Elston at um, Caffeine and Machine right. was where one of those formative conversations that led to some absolutely wonderful work. Lotus has a vibrant, strong armed forces engagement programme now, has a wonderful armed forces community there that's supporting the veterans there, supporting other people into the company. Um, they're putting a new memorial in for the bomber, Second World War bomber group that will actually come from outside the wire into, um, into uh, the Lotus site there, um, which we you know is a plan that they've been working on to do some really lovely stuff around. And it's fabulous. And you've just got this supportive community then that's, that's linked up that, that now is networking with uh, Norwich football clubs armed forces engagement oh, right. piece as well. And that's how it should be. You know, let's step this out because then you're moving out of serendipity and you're into going, we're deliberately making these connections because the more of these we make, the more chance you've got of an individual finding the thing that they need because you've just improved that web and the number of points of intersection. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, COVID happened and Mission Automotive went nuts. It was great. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been absolutely joyous. Mission Renewable joined it two years ago, um, really knitting things together across this fast expanding um, renewable sector. So I've, I've spent lots of time learning about things like offshore wind and, uh, um, and a big bit around the sustainability piece. And that's incredibly exciting. These are wonderful jobs that will sustain people for an awfully long time. We've been busy producing guides for service leavers so that they can make good decisions, but joining them up to a veteran audience that's previously never been counted or articulated before are now starting to form community and then starting to be able to pull people in after them. And you showcase that at, well, we, we used to run an event with Silverstone, um, just low level. They used to give us a corner of the circuit at some unsaleable time. That's turned into the national transition event. You know, a half day on the national circuit in February <laughs> has turned into we take over the whole of the wing, 4th of March next year is the next national transition event. And we, yeah, fill the pit lane and run a supercar passenger rides bit. There's your draw that you're doing at the top end to get the yeah, buggers yeah. there. But you're not just doing it for the wounded, injured or sick, you're doing it for those who need jobs. And it showcases Mission Automotive. Um, you know, we have sort of 40 odd companies there. Um, and Mission Renewable, these wonderful sector initiatives. And you bring MOD and the support agencies, all the people, that they struggle to get hold of, like Veterans UK, you bring them there and you have this wonderful sort of melting pot of the companies aren't allowed to bring recruiters. They're only allowed to bring their veterans or oh, the people amazing. who work on the armed forces piece. And suddenly you're connecting the former Royal Marine with the 
um, or the Royal Marine who's in the process of leaving, but you're connecting him with somebody he identifies and recognises with, who has travelled there from the far side of the largest wind farm, offshore wind farm in the world, which is Hornsea 2, it's about to be overtaken by Hornsea 3, who's got there by helicopter and ship <laughs> and then train in order to get there. And he's been supported in doing that by his company that recognises the value that the armed forces community bring to their, their company. Yeah. And that's better than a PowerPoint presentation going, it, it's quite you need impact. a job in offshore wind. Yeah, it's quite an impactful way to do that, isn't it? Totally. Here's a brochure versus this guy's flown in just to come and have a chat about this stuff. Like, and he was just like you. Yeah. He was just like you. He's been through the same thing that you have. So he's been through that transition piece. And actually tapping into that, the desire of veterans who've been through that, you feel an empathy for the buggers who are coming through after you and you feel like you've got something to help them to go, don't do what I did, you know, whatever yeah. you do. <laughs> or like, what it, you know, don't worry about this. I worried like hell about that, but it's not an issue. Or take this seriously, you know, um, that's often part of the message. You know, use the time where the MOD is paying for you to do stuff, squeeze the living daylights out of it. Yeah. And my big piece to them is always ask for help and network because service types don't tend to be brilliant at it yeah by culture they don't tend to be brilliant they they've come from a world where structure would take them along a path and all of a sudden you go to a place where there's no structure mm. and nobody's particularly motivated to take you along a path or the people who are there's money in it for them and that doesn't necessarily mean they're acting in your best interest absolutely uh, and that's a really, like, good way to explain how that world is different. Yeah. In that the the reason that world is moving you forward is for its interest in getting you and the rest of these people to a certain place to do a certain thing. Mm. It's not motivated by what's in it for me. It's, right, this is our job. Mm. And therefore, your job is to come along and do that bit. And that guy's job is to do that bit. And we've all got this common goal, which is kind of full circle, really, isn't it? Whereas yeah. outside of that, the main intrinsic motivator is what's in it for me. Well, how can I progress my own story? Not how go. does this unit move forward? It's right, what's, what am I getting out of this interaction? Where am I heading with this? It's why ex-military people are awful in interviews and things like that. You know? So we have your cutting questions. When was the time that you were the critical piece that really made something happen when you were under pressure? And they'll sit there and go, well, we were... Yeah. You know, and it's the first thing they'll come out with, is we. Because the whole language of going, I, you know, I was clearly better than the guy who preceded me. I was head and shoulders above my peers. The people who were working for me would have been dross if it hadn't been for my inspirational leadership. Yeah. You know, getting them out of a... It's just horrible. It's It'd be just, a guy no. with a medal for bravery and going above and beyond and going, yeah. well, we it, were stuck oh, here. It's like... Oh, my God. No, I mean, it's really countercultural and it's really bad. Um, uh, and it's, it's one of the things that... Well, there's always an interesting debate with MOD where they talk about going, well... We need to start training these behaviours earlier so that, you know, when people start in training, they're thinking about how they leave. And I will always argue back about, about that a bit. When you're in training, week one, day one of training, you need to be worrying about what your Lance Corporal wants, yeah. making bed blocks and being in the right place at the right time, wearing the right thing, and, you know, just staying on top of basics. You're not trying to write a CV thinking about what you're doing and articulating yourself down the line. And that piece of um, how... Uh, the first thing that people talk about is we instead of I is actually one of the things that we should be celebrating about those people rather than using HR tools that discriminate against that. Yeah. 
So how can you give HR different tools to help them separate the quality from the, from the not quality? Because that still exists. There are people who are the right fit for the organisation and there are people who are the wrong fit for the organisation. Your chance of distinguishing one from the other with the wrong tools is bugger all. Yeah. But if you use the right tools, then you'll suddenly access people that previously you were, you were overlooking. And that's what an awful lot of our work in industry is about helping them to, to tap into. And often it's really cheap because there are lots of people out there who would want to help. Um, and whether so that's as a business case then. <laughs> veterans within the organisation already, yeah, absolutely. Or you use something like the Armed Forces Covenant where you know, companies sign up to that and there is an employer recognition scheme that sits behind it, you know, it's a bronze, silver, gold. But if you're silver and gold, then not only are you doing good things for the armed forces community, you're an advocate. Yeah. So you are actively promoting that outside. So if there are companies out there who are seeking to be really shiny at it, and you know, I mean, it's stuff like Jaguar Land Rover who've been amazing at helping Toyota to do a veteran hiring initiative to put technicians into um, into Toyota garages across the country. Now JLR did that. Now JLR are desperately short of technicians. And they've effectively gone, here, competitor that we're taking these technicians, here's a good thing to do. And, uh, but it's because they recognise that there is a tension for technicians everywhere. If we're opening up new pathways of bringing people in to that community who otherwise wouldn't have made it in, then you're lifting the pain point for everybody. Yeah. So if Toyota hires 16 people through doing that, then that's eight people that Jaguar Land Rover haven't lost from their dealerships who were poached by, by, uh, yeah, by Toyota dealers. So everybody benefits. Uh, and funnily enough, you know, and, and, you know, and some of the Toyota ones actually have migrated and a couple of them now work for Jaguar Land Rover place. One of them is at an Aston Martin place, for example. But you've, you've kind of, you're putting fresh blood into a pool that everybody's trying to fish in and everybody therefore can benefit. But it's only by sort of stepping back can you, can you sort of have that sort of parachute view to kind of make the world a better place. It's a bit difficult when you're a smaller company and there is a very good point to be made. Everyone gets excited about the biggies. I'm actually quite interested in the littleies because the littleies employ two-thirds of the people in this country. You know, it's the, the big employers actually employ a minority of people in the country. Yeah. So how do you help the SME, you know, the, the, the smaller businesses? How can they tap into that kind of support when they don't have a veteran network or anything like that? And how can you make it relevant for them? And actually... That's where some of the trade associations and the trade bodies can come in because that's where you can tap into all of the clever stuff that JLR have done over the years through trial and error in order to learn some really good stuff. How can you tap into that and a bit of help from them? And Mission Automotive gives them a mechanism to do that in the automotive industry. Mission Renewable gives them mechanisms to do that in the renewable sector. So back to your question, which you asked me about half an hour ago now, but I've sort of largely skirted around. <laughs> We've got a really exciting piece of work um, with, uh, with government in order to look at, okay, how can we promote these wonderful behaviours across a broader spread of British industry than we're currently doing? And that's why, um, you know, there's quite a lot of my social media posts and me generally complaining about being on trains or buses as I'm having to go into town and pretend to be a grown-up. Oh, it's a nightmare having to do that. Yeah. I had to wear jeans today because it was a bit colder and I was very upset. Yeah. And uh, I, I had a couple of moments on the way here where I'd have some, some guy in a suit in a BMW sat on my back bumper as I'm doing 70 in the outside lane passing mm. someone. I'm like, 
oh, I'm, I'm not doing too bad. I'm in a nice baggy T-shirt that I designed myself. I'm in my car. That's my, one of my favourite things on the planet. It's Wednesday afternoon. I, I can't really complain too much. No. And then I'll have to go somewhere and be professional at some point, and it'll just be so painful because you're like, I know that we can do things without having to yeah, yeah. play in this theatre of suits and ties and shirts and things. Um, it doesn't make me better at doing what I do. It doesn't make me better at speaking if I'm wearing a shirt. If anything, it makes me uncomfortable. And I'm going to be focusing on that rather than the thing that you want me to talk about. Yeah. But we do have to play the game at times, and it's very frustrating. Well, that's it, and it's and it's also sort of finding your way as well. I mean, I, it was interesting when you were sort of talking earlier, and it's sort of you know how formative you are until you're kind of 25, and by 30, you're sort of pretty set. Um, I I had some fundamental changes in me after age 30. Right. Um, really really quite sort of significant shifts like learning how to dress yeah got, well, yeah part of that <laughs> is working out what civvies wear um but uh yeah no i i had some i had some some quite kind of profound changes and it's uh if if you subject people to tension it is normal and natural to be affected by that by that tension and uh, I mean, in military context, you know, PTSD is what is what people talk about. But I mean, this exists in every sort of walk of life. You know, you go through traumatic stuff of, you know, losing loved ones or perhaps suffering personal loss yourself, and all of those. You know, these are intensely formative experiences. And if you just brush them off and were unaffected by them, that wouldn't be a human response. Yeah. Um, but post-traumatic as words, are inevitably followed by stress disorder. And it's a bit like we always talk about mental health as a negative. Mm. We don't talk about mental fitness. Yeah. We don't talk about my mental health's brilliant, you know. <laughs> I am hating it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you know, how are you doing? I'm like, well... I've cried three my, times this month. It's yeah, been brilliant. My, my mental health is absolute. I'm bossing it at the moment. I'm yeah. a personal best, you know. We just don't talk in terms about that. If we talk about mental health, it's, 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 it's inferred as a, as a negative. Um, post-trauma is normally typified by the negative effects that it has where you haven't dealt with something properly. And it's a disorder because it's something that you haven't properly processed and you need to keep sort of coming around to it again. Or, and it's having a negative impact on your life forwards. And I fundamentally believe that... Um, post-traumatic growth dwarfs post-traumatic stress disorder or any of those things. I mean, I've, I've had some pretty intense periods in my life of different shapes and sizes for different reasons. But I think if we seek to use those in order to enhance us and to work out how that can bring out the best in us, then actually I think we can be a lot more gentle on ourselves in terms of being forgiving of when we are at less than our best yeah. is to reflect that actually you're not supposed to just shrug everything off. You know, it is okay to feel bad about stuff and and sometimes to need to be pulled out of a funk by somebody else. Don't, we all have that point where you sort of, you need a mate or you need a something to be able to get you out of there. And if you do that and a mate or something has pulled you out of there, well done you because you've accepted help, you found the thing, you made the connection, you had that point of serendipity that you may have created yourself in order to be able to pull you. Don't beat yourself up about it. That was yesterday. Tomorrow tomorrow you can do different things. Yeah. And post-traumatic growth, I think, is is incredibly important. And I, I've changed. You know, I think I'm more... 
I'm, I'm, I'm more all sorts of things, but I'm certainly more compassionate, empathetic. I'm, obviously, my wife would laugh at me and call me an absolute retard, but I'm, but I'm, I'm much more emotionally literate than, than, I, than I was in the past. And the reason for that is because of some of the stuff which I've been through and the things which I've, I've sort of done. Um, and that's okay. You know, that, that's kind of a good thing. And, and to embrace that and to kind of be okay with that, I think is often one of the big steps to people feeling better about themselves. Yeah, and I think it shows a big step of emotional maturity as well, understanding those parts about yourself and going, yeah. I accept that these exist and I'm going to lean into them and learn them and use them to grow rather than going... No, I don't need to learn how to be sensitive or how to care about anyone else. I'm me. I'm just soldiering on as I always have done. I think it, it yeah. shows real emotional maturity and personal maturity. And as you've said, growth from what has been tough into making positive steps. Um, and I think that's also a really nice point for us to wrap up on, as I've had you for nearly an hour and a half, which was more than our agreed upon limit. Mate, that's grand. <laughs> My big challenge this evening is a 16-year-old is inviting 30 of his mates around tonight. Oh, fantastic. So Just when we talk that. about post-traumatic growth, let's see how grown I am tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Text me in the morning, see how, uh, see how upset you are. Yeah. But uh, no, absolutely huge thank you to finding the hour and a half to sit down and chinwag with me. Absolutely. And uh, the only thing left is where are be people best looking for what you do uh, heaven. So Mi Mission Motorsport is in all the places where you'd expect to find it. I think um, uh, in Instagram and Twitter, it's, it's, uh, it's shortened to Mission Motor SPT, uh, just because of, I think, the length of, uh, the, length of the things. Um, you'll find us in all of those places. The website's got lots of great information on it. If you're interested in helping and supporting, then I think we're getting much better at getting, allowing people to help and support us through things like volunteering and fundraising and all of those. We absolutely need all of those things to exist and we're hugely grateful for it. But the community stuff is always the, the loveliest piece. So if people are interested in things like Race of Remembrance or coming along to our events, um, then get in touch, please. Don't be afraid to come and talk to us and we would kind of love to hear from you. Amazing. Well, thank you again and... Uh... Yeah, best of luck for tonight with all those kids knocking around. Thanks, my friend. I'm going to need it. <laughs> <laughs>